Welcome to the BOGScast, where faculty and staff at the BOG Center on Developmental Disabilities explore best practice, showcase success stories, and help listeners envision possibilities for innovation through interviews with state and national experts. Part of Rutgers Robert Wood Johnson Medical School, the BOG Center is New Jersey's University Center for Excellence in Developmental Disabilities and Leadership Education in Neurodevelopmental Disabilities Program. I'm Jamie Zahid, Training and Consultation Specialist at the BOG Center. In this episode, we'll be discussing equity, diversity, and inclusion with Regina Rodriguez Cisneros. Regina is currently the Director of Equity Initiatives and System Innovations for the National Association of State Directors of Developmental Disabilities. In this role, she works to promote equity, diversity, and inclusion within the association and supports members in similar efforts. Mrs. Cisneros spent 14 years at the Colorado Department of Human Services as the Contract Manager and Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion Manager for MindSource Brain Injury Network. She is a graduate of Georgetown University's Leadership Institute for Cultural Diversity and Cultural and Linguistic Competence. Her experience related to disability started personally because of individuals with disabilities within her family. And her professional experience related to disability began in 2008 when she became a certified brain injury specialist. I'm joined by my colleague today, Renetta Anderson, who I'm gonna, uh, Renetta, would you mind introducing yourself? Hello, my name is Renetta Anderson, and I'm proud to be accepted and appreciated for my diverse attributes as a mother and a person of color, a woman, and also a student working to get a master's degree in social work. And I'm very, very excited and happy to be here. Thank you, Renetta. Um, and just sort of establishing where we all are coming from. Um, I, I myself am a sibling of two individuals with disabilities who receive services through uh, the state of New Jersey. And I have a, a history of professional experience in the field, um, currently doing trainings for our support coordinators in New Jersey around person-centered planning. And so on that note, Regina, um, welcome and thank you so much for joining us today. Um, and I'm hoping Regina, you might just start with a little bit of an introduction about what brought you here. Um, tell us about your lived experience uh, and what brought you to a career in diversity and equity and um, inclusion um, and how have those experiences shaped you personally and professionally. First, thank you both uh, for joining me today and inviting me to this conversation. I really appreciate it. Um, so I thought really carefully about this question. And as I think back, um, first of all, I, you mentioned uh, that I have family members in my family that have, uh, are living with disabilities. Um, so there's that piece of that lived experience, but I wanna take it even bigger than that in um, talking a little bit about um, that I have a mother who was a teen, is, was a teen mother um, and a phenomenal, uh, well-engaged and very resourceful person. Um, and what she did when I was in uh, my junior high years is she looked for an opportunity for me to start to gain some experience um, in different professions so that I would value and seek a higher education. So what she did is she found an organization, the former Senator, Colorado Senator Ken Salazar at the time was our director of natural resources in Colorado. Now, mind you, we're growing up in inner city uh, population I and mean, we're, we're really in um, some areas that are um, underserved 
and um, have a significant disparity in economic, um, I mean, it's a poverty area. So anyway, um, <clears throat> what Ken Salazar was doing at the time as the director is he was attempting to hire um, people in professional positions within natural resources and was consistently um, given applications that were predominantly white males. And when he would push back at HR, HR would say, well, I'm sorry, but this is who's applying. And he said, well, recruit better, recruit better, push back and forth, back and forth. And the result was only white males were applying for these positions. Um, so it was um, important to him to, if diversity didn't exist, he was going to create diversity. Um, and especially in women applying for jobs in natural resources. And so what he did is he started a program called Youth and Natural Resources, where he recruited inner city youth and rural youth to be paired up for the summer with a professional um, who would teach them about geology, biology, um, you know, working in uh, zoology, whatever related to natural resources. And we would work for them Monday through Thursday. And then on Fridays, we would study um, science. We would stand, study STEM science and we would study math and, and science related to the field that we were supporting so that we understood the connection of education to natural resources. That, I was 14 years old when I did that. And that was my first introduction to seeing a disparity, seeing a need, seeing an underserved population and figuring out how we're going to do that effectively long-term. That's what Ken taught me. He taught me that if it doesn't exist, then we have to figure out a way to create it. Um, so that was my first experience. Then I mentioned a little bit about my mom being a young mother. And, um, you know, navigating systems, she was a really, really hard worker, but she still needed some support. She needed some housing support. She needed some support with um, food stamps, that kind of thing, so that she could keep us healthy and strong. And we used inner city um, clinics for our health services, which created some barriers to access for services for my brother who had a disability and later on in life for my uh, father, stepfather who has a disability. So watching that process and watching those barriers, seeing those doors close and even seeking the right words of what we needed to ask for, I watched my mom navigate that as a young woman. And that strengthened my skill in my mind to pay attention to that when I entered into health and human services on my own. So when I entered into health and human services, it was a reflection, it was um, a result of my employment as a 14 year old kid. And I stayed with state employment for 20 years and kind of moved up the ranks. Well, I was, as I was moving up the ranks and learning the state system, I was watching people in board meetings and in um, administrative meetings make decisions about communities that I felt like they were disconnected to in terms of really understanding the priorities, um, the social determinants of health, understanding what was really being impacted in these communities and what these communities needed. So I started chiming up. I started saying, I don't know about that one. And I don't know about that one. And let's, maybe we should engage the community and ask them if they really want that or need that, or, you know, what their priorities are. As I was doing that, my director, uh, my former director, Judy Detmer, um, said, Reg, you're working EDI at its core. Like, that's exactly what you're doing. Um, and this was about 15 years ago. And she said, let's formalize it. And so um, I started looking for programs and I found Georgetown. I found the National 
a center for cultural and linguistic competencies and uh, started working with them and particularly with Tuara Good as my mentor, um, who does a lot of uh, phenomenal national work, worldwide work, actually, to be honest, um, and formalized my training that way and formalized my network that way and saw how when you take lived experience and you take the education that's needed to work on DEI, they complement each other immensely. And um, you're able to see a perspective that's genuine and that is very well thought out. Absolutely. Th thank you so much for that, um, for that response, Regina. I, I couldn't help but uh, pick up on you were talking about, you know, experiencing um, populations that, that didn't necessarily know the words to ask for. And I feel like that is such a, a big concern for people who are, you know, minority populations, perhaps first generation Americans mm -hmm. um, or recent immigrants even. That's a, a topic I've definitely chatted with some of my colleagues about before, you know, how it can be so difficult to navigate the system for people that are somewhat advantaged, if you will, um, and do have the words of what to ask for. Um, so that, that really stood out to me as my point, I guess. <laughs> yeah, and I think it's really important to, I appreciate, Jamie, that you talked a little bit about that because many cultures don't have the words for disability. Mm -hmm. Just that one word, they don't have that word. Um, it doesn't translate, autism. They don't have a word in their culture that, and big picture, their concept of how they care for the individuals with the disability that are living with disabilities in their communities is very different. And so now to be in a situation, especially if you're first generation, to be in a situation where you're navigating a system you don't even quite understand, that's a, that's a huge barrier. And it's one that we have to really uh, think about and, and maybe even reflect on. What if it was me and I was trying to survive in another country um, and I was learning new systems and new words and new concepts that I had never known about and that I have a different perspective on. If I have a perspective in my culture that disability is, um, especially uh, individuals who respect um, cultures where it's part of reincarnation and it's part of you know uh, what we have to endure in our lifetime. And so not a penance, but it, it's part of our life and it's something that we have to go through and we have to honor that or someone who doesn't think disability and has the perception that disability is not a barrier. It just makes you beautiful, more beautiful and, and more different and more unique and more wonderful. And, and that's the perception that many cultures have for us to come in and say, oh, but we need to fix you and we need to fix your child. And we need that is a disservice. It's a disrespect. Um, and so we need to think about those things. Absolutely. Regina, for, for those that might not know, um, can you give us just a, a, a definition of what does equity, diversity, and inclusion mean? Yeah, and I, I mean, I start off by giving, you know, Merriam-Webster style uh, definitions because I think it's important, you know, because people are going to go back and reference, and then I give you kind of my opinion around it. And so equity is when every person um, has the opportunity to attain services and supports in a way that they need and want them and to attain his or her full potential of quality of life. And I think you can tell where I manipulated a little bit of this definition. And that would be where I'm talking about the way that they want them. Mm. Um, that's important for us to consider is that 
a service that we may be delivering may or may not fit the community that we're working with. And so we may, may need to uh, take a step back and rethink that. Um, it's really uh, an injustice to standardize our processes. We have to be flexible. We have to know that um, some communities just can't wrap their head around um, some of our Western, you know, Western influences decisions. And so really teaching and learning is where I think it comes into play. Um, diversity is a practice of including people from a range of different social, ethnic, economic, geographic backgrounds, and of different genders, sexual orientations. And again, I really think that you can tell where I influence um, this a little bit, where I add in um, economic and geographic, because I think that's really important. Where What you have access to in terms of your resources, especially your financial resources, makes a big difference in how you're going to show up at a meeting and how you're going to represent what you, your family, yourself, your community needs, because you have minimum, you have less resources. It's a reality. Um, and I also think that geographic influence is huge when you think about diversity, and I think we eliminate it. And I think it's important because a person who grew up in an inner city, metropolitan city, versus someone who grew up rural, versus, versus someone who, you know, whose parents were part of the military and they're moving all over the place, we all have really different experiences and we navigate systems differently because they're available to us differently. Um, so, and we have different words. We even have our own words and we even have our own cultural norms. So I add geographic. And then I think that we forget more often than not to include in diversity individuals with abilities um, and, and, and all different levels of abilities, you know, and, and recognizing that we all have abilities and we all have contribution and we all have value, and we all have priorities, and we all have a voice. Um, so people looking at um, abilities and the different levels of abilities is really important. And then I also think that we're not very careful at including in diversity age. And I say that because there's, even if I were to look at the experiences of myself, my mother, my grandmother, and uh, being a Latina woman in the United States, we all had different experiences. Um, we all have intersectionalities of some discrimination and some um, oppression that we experience, and we've all experienced it, but we have different, different ways that we experienced it. Some of it was more um, you know, in our social dynamics, some of it, we experienced it more in institutional um, systemic um, situations. So I think it's really important that age come to the table as well. And then as far as inclusion, inclusion is the action of including. Um, and I really try to focus on the verb to include, including, and, and what that means and how it feels to um, especially include populations who have been traditionally marginalized or underserved and really empower people to feel um, safe to be included and to continuously show up. And when we're considering inclusion, I think it's really important that we don't ask people consistently to show up alone. Um, there's a lot of, of hard uh, questions and hard conversations and to be able to show up in unity together with, with one or two people who represent your community, that's a big deal. And uh, you know, I have a couple of gals um, who are from Somalia who work in, um, in Minnesota and they consistently get told you have one seat at the table and the two of them consistently have to advocate uh, 
Somalia has a lot of tribes. <laughs> there's a lot of different languages. There's a lot of different cultural norms. And so for just one person to come and represent everybody, that's a lot. So when we think about inclusion, I think it's really important to think about even diversity within that inclusion and can, you know, considering different voices. Uh, excellent, Regina. I, you're, you're talking about, you know, people, we don't want them to show up alone. And that kind of brings me to the idea of um, tokenism. Uh, mm -hmm. well, we, we've included a particular population, but we've really only included a handpicked person from that population. And is that really, is that really inclusion? Are we really truly being diverse? When we've only invited that one person, because um, that one person, like you said, they only have their experiences. And it will recreate exhaustion in that person. Right, absolutely. Um, make them, you know, burnt out for mm -hmm. sure. Because it's exhausting to always be in a seat where you're, you're the one that's creating the exposure and the vulnerability. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We've heard the terms cultural competence, cultural humility, and cultural responsiveness. Mm -hmm. Are they the same? Well, so I would start with cultural responsiveness, you know, I mean, cultural responsiveness is really just promoting an understanding, right? You're responding and under and creating understanding. Cultural humility is actually um, developing a skill set within yourself to stay humble. Cultural humility is recognizing and honoring that we don't know everything. Um, and what we're trying to get to is cultural competence, but I think that we interpret it that cultural competence is the mastery of knowing all about culture, all about the various cultures and all about their cultural norms. I don't believe that that's what cultural competence is. I believe cultural competence is mastering the awareness that cultural humility and cultural responsiveness are muscles in us. And that we have to master the commitment to always exercising that muscle and recognizing that humility is the biggest strength. Humility and empathy are the biggest strengths in responsiveness, humility, and cultural competence. So I think we think we're mastering cultural competence like we are the masters of culture. In reality, what we're mastering is our commitment to the long-term, lifelong, generation after generation commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion, and because it's a slow process. Definitely, definitely. Thank you so much for putting more of a perspective on that, because acknowledging and understanding a person's racial and cultural identities is essential for providing proper supports, mm -hmm. better supports. Right. It's person-centered, right? Right, 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 right. Um, and I, I appreciate that that um, description around cultural competence, and I've heard a number of people speak about it. Um, and I, I'm sometimes almost disappointed to hear that, you know, cultural competence has to be so finite. Mm -hmm. um, and, and your explanation around that makes me feel a little less um, uh, uh, stressed out around that term. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because it makes you feel like I'm not quite mastered it. Right, right. Um, like I <laughs> and never will. That's the beauty. Yeah. <laughs> I've hesitated to even use the term because I feel like it's, uh, I, I'm like putting myself on, on some sort of a, a pedestal of, of, of claiming that mastery that you spoke of. But um, right. of course I'm not. I, I, I know very well that there's cultures that I'll never even know about, let alone have an understanding of them. Mm -hmm. 
So Regina, how, how do we infuse conversations about equity, diversity, and inclusion into person-centered approaches uh, within our everyday work? And so specifically, I'm thinking about those who might be listening and they spend their day um, you know, doing the day-to-day -day case management work or direct care worker, teacher, job coach. How do we infuse this conversation into their work? Well, I would say that it's really important first <laughs> to take on some responsibility, right? Don't put all the burden of learning about a new culture that you may be presented with with a new family that's on your caseload. Don't put all that burden on them to tell you about the history of, the, of their state, the history of their community. Go learn, go learn about them as much as you can. Then recognize that their experience is not necessarily um, you know, a mirror to what you just read, right? considered that there was some complexity and some diversity and some influences in their experience. And then start to ask some questions, pull the culture wheel out and start to ask some questions and start to engage. But the only way that you're gonna be able to get to any of those things is if you create first, before you even engage on your person-centered uh, practice, you know, your checklists and all those things, you have to create a safe environment for someone. People know, and I will challenge many people to recognize that, especially individuals who um, are, you know, of the African-American community, the Asian community, the Latino community, I believe that we even have a stronger muscle of recognizing when somebody is not genuine. And so we will, as a survival of what we've endured in our surviving, we will put up a barrier that says, I'm going to just tell you just a little bit about me. And, and that's part of, of, you know, the intersectionalities of the experiences of oppression and racism that we've gone through so that we're careful to protect ourselves, our family, and the community that we represent. Um, so we have to come with humility. We have to come with genuine intent of really trying to support that person in front of us and then get to know that person, start asking questions and know that, if you want vulnerability from someone, you have to offer vulnerability to someone. It's, it's human nature. Now, I'm not saying that we cross barriers, cross lines related to our profession, but I can tell you what my favorite foods are and why that's my favorite food without crossing any barriers related to my profession and show you how I celebrate culture by modeling it and showing you some different dynamics of, of cultural characteristics, introducing that starts to create a safe place for someone else. The other thing I will say, if you uh, really want to be considerate and be at you know, your strongest form when you're, when you're uh, executing DEI and person-centered services is to be considerate about the cultural norms you enter into. So if you're entering into someone's fam to, uh, family's home and they offer you food, it's okay to, to take that food because first of all, there's many cultures who are giving you their last meal. Um, there's many communities who are offering their last meal to you. And it's very disrespectful for you to not take something, to not accept water, to not sit down if they're sitting on the floor, to not sit with them, to not remove your shoes when you walk into their home. Pay attention to what their cultural norms are and pay attention to how you can respect those 
and how you can cut enter it. Because a lot of the work that we do, now obviously we weren't doing it during COVID, but a lot of the work we do, we go into people's homes and also ask people if they feel comfortable in their home having these types of conversations. And um, for many communities, it's really important for us to live together. And we like to have, I grew up on a block where there are all of my aunts and uncles lived on the same block in four houses. And that includes my grandparents and my great-grandparents. And so we were all, I mean, there was no privacy. Like if I'm having a meeting, I want to be like, um, can we meet at the library? Because everybody and their mama's coming this week. So think about, you know, how people are, are presenting to, you know, no, that's, I don't really want to have this conversation there or whatever, you know? Such an insightful answer, Regina. I'm over here taking copious notes. Um, <laughs> Because I do person-centered planning training for uh, for support coordinators in New Jersey. And I feel like in the past, even just two years, I, I'm doing so much better because, because of this conversation that we're having mm -hmm. um, around culture and making sure, like you said, around giving people space, um, around offering up something about yourself, about your own culture. And mm -hmm. I always emphasize to support coordinators, you know, don't get too personal, like, but, but offer something you're human to. Right. Even if you uh, talk about music, you know, and, and if you start to notice that the person that's in front of you really values music, you can start to introduce some some music. And, and especially if it's got some, you know, influence to the, your family and your culture, they'll really, you'll see the eyes light up. Mm. Oh, we connect there. I can see on our humanness, we're connecting there. Absolutely. I agree so much. And this is definitely a perfect segue into the next question I have for you is what can an organization do to make everyone feel included? Well, I think we first have to recognize that the individuals that we employ and that we work with and that our colleagues and our subordinates and our supervisors and our director, we all have culture. And so we have to value that, right? We have to value that internally and we have to acknowledge that. And we can't walk in and say, I don't see color. I mean, how do you not see, you know, this on me? It's, I can't take this off and I don't want to take it off and I see it and it's really beautiful and I love it. And so those kinds of things, creating those kinds of cultural norms that separate us instead of embrace us into being able to um, bring our culture. Um, you know, there's a big movement right now um, around hair and what professional hair is um, coming into our worlds. And that's really difficult. Uh, my children are Lakota and my boys have braids and, um, you know, African-American women wear their hair in different styles and African-American men wear their hair in different styles. And it's very cultural. And for many of us, it's also part of our spirituality. Um, and so when we start putting all these roadblocks in um, our way, we don't let people be their true and authentic selves. And how are they going to allow the individuals that we are serving to be their true and authentic selves if they themselves can't be? So we have to work internally. That's important. DEI has to be internal and external. Absolutely. And I can relate to that in so many different ways. Just with me, coming out of college and about to enter the workplace. Mm -hmm. I think about it all the time when I'm, when I'm going to my interviews, I think I stop and think like, you know, should I straighten my hair? Can I keep it my natural state? And I'm so happy in my natural state. I find it beautiful. I find it real. I find it, this is my authentic self. And I really, really want to embrace that. And I find it hard sometimes to even think like, why do I even have to stop and think about it? Why do I have to stop 
and try to make this decision on whether or not this is going to be appropriate for this interview. Mm -hmm. Me I being my natural earrings. self. <laughs> I do that with earrings all day long, right? I, because like the bigger the earring, the better for me. I just, it, I'm, my jewelry can, some people may even view it as obnoxious because I wear very cultural earrings that are just beautiful and they're beaded and they're heavy. And sometimes I think, am I, is, am I crossing a line? Is this not professional? And then I think I love that what it represents and I love the people and the reason they made them for me and what every single bead represents and, and their conversation starters, right? People obvi obviously ask me where I got them and that kind of stuff. So I appreciate that, Renata. So what is your approach to understanding um, the perspectives of colleagues and clients from different backgrounds? And I, you've, you've definitely touched on this topic already in your conversation. How, how do you get to that point of, of having that understanding? So um, this question excited me because there's a project that I left behind when I left the Colorado Department of Human Services um, that I was sad to leave behind because I loved participating it in it um, a few of colleagues of mine we created what was called the belonging project in human services now human services in colorado has about thirteen thousand employees and we're spread out all across the state right and so we started working on dei and we realized that to really um start to to work on what we needed which was courageous conversations right we needed to be able to have courageous conversations things were happening in our world um, that were scary and extremely painful um, for us to watch and to under, um, just watch it unravel in front of us. So what we did with the Belonging Project is we mapped out a year and we looked at um, different cultural celebrations, holidays. Uh, we even looked at, um, you know, uh, different disabilities and, and when those disabilities were um, had on the calendar, awareness dates and that kind of thing. And so with that, we took each month and we had a podcast, we had a webinar and we had a book and we had readings. And so what we did is if, so if we were talking about um, LGBTQ plus awareness in that month, we'd have a book that we were all collectively reading and people could choose whether or not they wanted to participate. And we would have a podcast that we, we would record and we would have uh, resources available and then we would have a webinar. And in the webinar, we invited staff to teach staff. And so the staff who were comfortable exposing um, their sexual orientation, their gender identity, and or parents who were comfortable um, talking about their experience of their kiddo coming out to them or their family member coming out to them, we let them talk and we let them present and we learned from them. And that evolved month after month after month. And it created that vulnerability. I'm gonna share my vulnerability and then I'm gonna honor you when you share your vulnerability. It created that dynamic. It created interest. People really wanted to uh, be engaged more often or not. And it created people to feel empowered to raise their hand. The next time an opportunity came up and they could, they could do it even with an article. They could write an article and share an article, whatever way they felt most comfortable with. And then um, it started to, when we got into courageous conversations and started to have conversations that could potentially be a conflict, mm -hmm. People felt comfortable um, in that they could say what they wanted to say without other people assuming negative intention because they knew 
where that person's thought process was coming from and that they really weren't a bad human. They were trying to understand and they were trying to learn. Um, so that belonging project, even doing it on a smaller scale with a smaller group, I think makes a big difference because there's power in being um, a teacher, yes, but there's power in being a student. And humility, uh, which is, I think, the strongest muscle of DEI, stays strong in that humility. Thank you for that, Regina. Um, unfortunately, we don't have an endless amount of time to talk to you, even though I feel like Renan and I can talk to you all afternoon. I'm wondering if you have any parting words specifically for those of us who are serving people with disabilities um, in the state of New Jersey and beyond, because obviously this conversation is not um, specific to New Jersey by any means. Mm -hmm. um, any, any parting words for us? I would say my, what I think is the best way to strengthen your own cultural awareness and cultural humility muscles is to get engaged and get out there and start participating, show up. It's really hard for me to go into a community and ask if I can, um, you know, if I, participation on a big research grant or whatever, if that community doesn't even know me, they've never even seen me. They don't know what that, I, they don't know what I represent and what I'm about. And, and they have their, their surviving barriers in front of me, get involved and expose yourself to other cultures and other communities and start to see uh, the familiarities that we have as humans of wanting to feel um, included, wanting to feel loved, wanting to feel belonged, wanting to feel safety, watch and start to observe the many similarities that we have in common. Um, and then when you start to see that and you start to experience and you start to see the joyfulness of um, diversity and equity and inclusion and see that fruit come to life in front of you, it's going to fill your cup. And that's what you need because DEI is exhausting. Um, the work can be exhausting. It's very enjoyable. It's very rewarding work. But it can also be exhausting because we are up against some barriers. But to stay connected with one another and to support one another is a big deal. Absolutely. Thank you so much for this conversation, Regina. We really appreciate it. Um, and Renetta, thank you so much for co-hosting with me. Oh, absolutely. It was my pleasure. I enjoyed myself and I learned so much from the both of you. Thank you so much for this opportunity. Sure, and thank you both. And I'll just say, I wish that this was a recording that was um, that included the video because you are uh, beautiful women, and for the world to see uh, this work being done by beautiful women is is phenomenal. And I, and I say that, and I'm glad to be sitting here with the two of you. Oh, I thank you so much, so much, Regina. Thank you. Sure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Bogscast, a podcast by the Bog Center on Developmental Disabilities. A full transcript of this episode can be found at thebogscenter.podbean.com. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on your favorite streaming service to stay up to date with the newest episodes. To learn more about the Bog Center, visit our website at rwjms.ruckers.edu backslash slash Bog Center. And follow us on Facebook at the Bog Center on Developmental Disabilities.